the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated please. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. to globalism is nationalism. This is the right take. How's it going, everybody? Welcome, welcome. This is episode number 80 of The Right Take, folks. Another big milestone. Before you even know it, we are going to cross that 100 threshold soon enough, guys. It'll be here before you know it. And we are glad that you guys have been with us all this time from the very beginning when we started back in January of 2021. God, that feels like a lifetime ago. But we are still going stronger than ever. We are about to enter our third year on the air, guys, and we are not slowing down for you. So this episode, we're going to, of course, we're going to cover the last of election season, of primary season, guys. Primary season officially capped out two weeks ago. We, of course, apologize for the uh, lack of an episode last week. 
technical difficulties. Let's go ahead and uh, blame it on the hurricane, though, Jacob, just to be on the safe side, because obviously that is pretty something a uh, big deal that just happened uh, down there over on the, the southeast coast of the United States. It did not affect either of us at all, of course, and our thoughts and our prayers are with those who were affected. But we have a convenient excuse, to say the least, to say why there was no episode last week. But we are making it up for you guys today with a jam-packed episode. In addition to the recap of the last primaries of the season, we are going to be talking about Something that was certainly dominating the news, the political news, right before Hurricane Ian hit, and it raises a huge debate about whether or not this thing is actually a really genius move by Republican governors, or if it's just a great big stunt. We are going to be talking about how the Great Replacement, which is real, by the way, folks, is already being put into effect in some European cities, and we are going to react to the grand unveiling of the Republican Party's big message going into the final weeks here of the midterm elections. And is it really this bombshell, you know, contract with America style uh, document, this platform that is going to win them a landslide election? Or is it another fizzle? We'll have to wait and see. So two weeks ago on September the 20th, we had our last three primary contests in the 2022 midterm election cycle. And as I said previously, they were the states of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. Connecticut, I'm just gonna be honest, not much to see here. Move along. Rhode Island, there was one interesting race I wanted to bring attention to. In the race for the second congressional district, former mayor of Cranston and two-time gubernatorial nominee Alan Fung won the Republican nomination, while Rhode Island treasurer Seth Magaziner won the Democrat nomination. That's for the seat being vacated by Congressman Jim Langvin, who is retiring this year. And interestingly enough, it's Rhode Island. It's a pretty blue state. And yet, pretty much every single poll has Fung in the lead right now. He apparently, obviously, is a very popular uh, Republican, a well-known statewide name there, having run for governor twice. And in 2014, he actually came very close to winning that gubernatorial election in this otherwise deep blue state. So this could very well be an upset Republican pickup, and that'd just be one more seat that would go towards the Republicans gaining as sizable majority of, as possible in the House of Representatives, which is important. The larger the majority, the better. And New Hampshire's the big one. We talked about this one, of course. Uh, in the first congressional district, Caroline Levitt, that Zoomer churning out boomer talking points, did end up ultimately winning the Republican nomination over the uh, State Department stooge Matt Mowers, and she will face uh, incumbent Democrat Chris Pappas. So we obviously were critical of her last time here on The Right Take, but Jacob and I can agree that she's probably better than Mowers. So again, this could very well be a Republican pickup. We'll have to wait and see. It'll probably, it'll probably be a close race at the end of the day. She may not win. Polls do have him as the slight favorite, but we'll have to wait and see if New Hampshire can flip red. And on that same note, or if that district of New Hampshire flips red, it could be an indication for the broader race in New Hampshire. The, one of the most important statewide race is the race for that state's U.S. Senate seat, where incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan is running for re-election. Retired Brigadier Army General Don Bolduck did ultimately win the Republican nomination. He was uh, running against a more establishment candidate named Chuck Morse, a state senator there, who was endorsed by Governor uh, Chris Sununu. And Bolduck was criticized by the mainstream media and by, you know, some Republicans, including uh, Governor Sununu, as being too radical. You know, he was uh, because he believes voter fraud happened in 2020. That's such a radical position, right? He ultimately did end up winning by a sizable margin. 
And this is yet another candidate that, with all the media attacks, Democrats have actually been spending money to boost his candidacy because they believe, you know, he, he is far right. He'll be easier to beat in the general, you know, kind of like they did with John Gibbs in that one race for a congressional seat in Michigan. And this could very well backfire on them. If Bullduck were to end up winning the election, he would be a very solid America first senator. He's running very much on a platform of election integrity, which is what we need to see. And that would be just one more way that their overconfidence, the Democrats' overconfidence, absolutely comes back to bite them in the you-know-where. So that is it, ladies and gentlemen, for primary recaps here on The Right Take. Now we go on to November, where there is one more state that has its primaries on Election Day, November 8th, the day of the general election. That's Louisiana. They have their open blanket primaries, kind of like we do in California, where the top two candidates, all candidates run together, Democrats, Republicans, whatever, and the top two candidates regardless of party, advance to the general election. So and their general election, their runoff election is about a month later. It's in like mid-December. So after general elections have happened everywhere else in the state. And of course, Georgia also has runoff elections for any uh, elections where no candidate gets above 50% of the vote, 50% plus one. So other than those Georgia runoffs and of course, Louisiana's unusual primary system, that is it for primary season, folks. So Texas Governor Greg Abbott actually followed through on his threats to ship migrants north. If you remember <laughs> back in I, – I, when did he start saying this? Was this like 2020 or 2021? I think it was right after Biden took office. It was 2021 because that's claimed, when it really spiked and it started to get out of control on the border. Right, yeah. He claimed that he was going to ship mar migrants to Washington, D.C., to Chicago, to New York City, to Boston, to these liberal cities, and to California where they want to try to tout their liberal values and how they're so open to open immigration and they believe we're a diverse society, a nation of immigrants, yada, yada, yada. The, pro the problem is that a lot of these white liberals who live in these urban enclaves, they don't actually have to live around any migrants who aren't washing their clothes changing their beds, uh, changing their baby's diapers and all this other thing. Clean their you know, toilets. The, the help comes. Yeah, clean their toilets. The help comes while they're out, and then it leaves oftentimes before they even arrive home. So they don't really interact much with immigrants. They don't really eat fast food because, you know, there, a lot of them are health nuts and health conscious because <laughs> they don't immigrate. They don't interact with immigrants in that regard. Vegans and uh, yoga I and mean, all that stuff. And they'll see immigrants on the roof, putting a roof on the distance of their neighbors, you know, the construction workers. But they don't actually interact with immigrants on a day-to-day -day basis. And for, most importantly, most immigrants don't really threaten their jobs or their livelihood. Most of these people have more than a million dollars in their bank account. So unlike the people on the border of Texas, they don't actually have to deal with these people. And I remember whenever Abbott came out and was threatening this, people were saying, I think we said this on the show, that he's just bluffing, he's just blowing steam, he's trying to gain clout, show that he's not a rhino. Turns out he actually followed through. It, it started out as a trickle, and now it's become a wave. He started out sending a few dozen buses to Washington, D.C., and now Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida is following suit, and he has taken the drastic action of actually flying. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he flew, didn't he fly those migrants directly to Martha's Vineyard from Florida? That is correct. They were flown in. After the first few, as you said, were delivered to Washington, D.C. and some of these areas, other areas on buses, DeSantis actually chartered a jet to fly in 48 illegal aliens to the ultra-rich, uber-wealthy island, and uh, I should add, very white-populated island that is Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. 
Well, what's interesting is whenever they started this, they started dumping these migrants in uh, like in front of Kamala Harris's VP mansion. <laughs> they started dropping them in front of Union Station in Washington D.C. These in in New York City, these blue city mayors were going apoplectic. Yep. Uh, what's the lady's name? I forgot her. The mayor's name of Washington D.C. Video um, game video game fans love this. Her name is Muriel Bowser. Muriel Bowser, yes. And she was she has been a real pain in Biden's side because she's been very vocally speaking out against Biden or criticizing Biden's reaction to immigrants, so basically demanding that they declare a national emergency. And the Biden administration just flatly refused. They're saying, no, we're not going to declare a, a, a national emergency because your city is being flooded with illegal immigrants. And the thing is, like Washington, D.C. already has a very large homeless population. Mm -hmm. So when you're dumping these illegals in D.C. and New York City, they're just living in the homeless shelters. Right now, two-thirds – I saw a report yesterday that sh said that two-thirds of the illegals in New York City who have arrived since Abbott and DeSantis started doing this are now living full-time in homeless shelters. Yep. And the thing is, in New York City, they have a law that says that they have to provide housing for every single person. So le they are legally bound to provide housing for every single homeless person in New York City. So all of these people who are coming to New York, they're taking up beds that should go to American citizens who are living on the streets. And a lot of American citizens, I'm sure, aren't able to get in because they're housing these illegal immigrants. Another issue that is complicated is subsidized housing. I actually spoke to someone a few months ago who is uh, – she's an older lady. She uh, works a basic job like at a fast food restaurant, and she's always lived in government housing. And she said that right now she's having to live with her daughter for the simple reason that she can't find housing because immigrants are given priority over American citizens. They're housing the refugees primarily before they put Americans on the list. And this is this is a huge issue and shows how our city governments don't put American citizens first. Now, here's the issue. A lot of these a lot of these mayors and these governors of liberal states ran on platforms claiming that they're going to help black people and minorities. When you have foreigners coming in that are taking up all the beds and the homeless shelters, they're eating up all the services. They don't have anything left to care for the poor minorities that they ran on to help. These migrants aren't voting for these politicians. They're not going to vote this year. They're not going to vote in 2024. It doesn't matter how much uh, we're going to skip that for YouTube's sake, but it doesn't matter how much yada, yada, yada happens. They're not going to vote. Like most of the people are not going to vote. So this is creating a huge issue for Democrats because People on the ground in New York and Washington, D.C., they're seeing the reality of their liberal policies, whereas the people who are working for the White House, people who are working in Congress, they're becoming extremely annoyed by the fact that their own Democratic mayors are not living up to their ideals. So this is actually a win-win situation for Republicans. The question that we need to ask is, is this a long-term solution? Of course it's not. Right, exactly. These people can travel from New York City to Iowa. They can travel from Washington, D.C. down to North Carolina. Once they arrive there, nothing's keeping them there. So they're going to eventually hop on buses and move to somewhere that's more affordable. They're eventually going to take those jobs from Americans, like the retail jobs and the fast food jobs. That was my concern, with the, 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 that was my concern with the initial shipment of bus loads of migrants to D.C. Is D.C. especially, as we've said before, it's a very small geographic area. I said a lot of the illegals are just going to take a quick walk, get across the river on one of the bridges. 
bridges and they'll be in Virginia before you know it. And then they're going to fill up oh, the yeah. Virginia population and add more Democratic voters who eventually will get amnestied and will start voting in future elections. So that was my concern. Now, New York, on the other hand, you know, the whole state, that's one thing. But ultimately, I was just, yeah, that was my initial opposition to that is that they can easily go anywhere. And if Democrats really want to ship these people to swing states in the Rust Belt to sway the elections, they are going to do it. An article on CNN, this was an op-ed they were writing about the Brazilians on Martha's Vineyard because one of the things that conservatives have been doing is trying to paint the folks on Martha's Vineyard as hypocrites, claiming that, look at here, y'all claim that you support migrants, that you support all the the refuse of or the refugees of foreign <laughs> countries, but yet you're not going to welcome these people. You're going to immediately kick them off your island as soon as they arrive. That's not exactly what happened. Like the people of Martha's Vineyard did come out and they did show that, yes, we are welcoming immigrants they brought them food and blankets and clothes and offered them housing and all this stuff obviously for show but at the same time a lot of these people they're so rich they can afford to be opening and welcoming to immigrants it's not like people who are middle class or lower middle class on the border of the rio grande but another thing that is uh people are overlooking is the fact that these immigrants who are coming in they're going to be taking jobs that non-college educated americans would be filling and this op-ed that i read on cnn and we'll actually link it in the um underneath the episode but they were pointing out that before brazilian migrants moved to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts in the early 2000s, because there's a huge Brazilian population in Massachusetts. Um, they said, this lady was saying that before those migrants moved to Massachusetts, the people who did the menial tasks on Martha's Vineyard were white college students. But now that all these Brazilians are who people who she claims show up on time to work and work hard rather than just party are there, there's no more need for the white college students. Now, if a person who actually cares about their fellow Americans reads that, they're going to think, wait a minute. So I don't really care about the rich people in Martha's Vineyard. I don't care if they're getting more bang for their buck by getting hardworking Brazilians who are showing up on time, who are all living together in you know common housing so they can cut down on costs. I care more about American college students because a lot of these college students they don't come from wealthy families. The only chance they have of paying for college or surviving in college or having any kind of decent life in their college years is if they make extra money during the summertime. And if these jobs aren't available to them because they're all going to Brazilians, then where are they going to make money? A lot of times it's dry, it's uh, drying out these parents because they don't have the money to afford for their kids to go to college and housing and extra spending money. So they're digging deep to give their kids more money while they're in college when they really should be using that money to save up for their own retirement which is what they did back whenever the college students had readily available jobs on Martha's Vineyard and other wealthy locations where they could go work. Here's the thing, like before we had massive immigration to the United States, who washed clothes? Who cut the lawns? Like who changed babies' diapers? It was usually it was young Americans. Yes, it was young Americans. It was young people in their late teens, early 20s who went and did these jobs. And they, if people wanted these jobs done, they had to be willing to pay these Americans enough to get them to want to do the jobs. This is another one of the arguments. Well, these migrants are doing jobs that Americans don't want to do. And that doesn't make any sense. Anyone who knows economics uh, knows that that is completely senseless. If you have, let's say, just real quick, we've got to move on, but I want real quick example. Let's say, for instance, you have a restaurant and mm -hmm. you need workers at that restaurant. And the people who live around you don't want to work at a restaurant. What do you have to do to get them to want to work at your restaurant? Offer them good you pay. You have to offer them more money. 
than what they can make bagging groceries. Mm-hmm. If you offer them more money than what they can make doing something that they want to do, they will want to work at your restaurant. This is just supply and demand. This is supply and demand of labor. If you want, and it's not that Americans don't want to do these jobs. It's that Americans can't do these jobs at the wages that these wealthy multimillionaires want to pay to do these jobs. So this is this is the main problem with the immigration issue, and this is the main victory from Abbott and DeSantis doing this is it puts the spotlight on immigration. Most Americans, eighty percent of Americans, don't want these people here. They right. understand that these people are not contributing to the American economy. They're not contributing to the American society. All they're going to do is fill fast food jobs and retail jobs, and they're going to cause the wealthy to get wealthier, and they're going to cause the poor to get poor. And that's why you have so many homeless Americans, because you've got a lot of Americans who are generally low IQ, don't have a lot of education. In a good economy, they would be making 15 to $20 an hour flipping burgers. Instead, they're shooting up heroin under a bridge because those burger flipping jobs aren't available to them because employers don't want to hire them. And that's if you think about it, why sharecroppers in the South moved north and took factory jobs is because we stopped the immigration. We stopped the low wage immigration from southern and eastern Europe and factory owners had to find workers. So they went to the South and they started recruiting American sharecroppers to move up north and take those good paying jobs. If you drop the immigration, you'll see the wealth gap decrease and you'll see a lot fewer homeless Americans. Exactly. Immigration at the end of the day, it just devalues labor and specifically American labor because you have these immigrants who will come in and they will work for a dime what you, an hour what Americans will ask you know, $15 an hour for. It's just it's basic. It's smart economics on the part of the business owners, obviously, but that screws over the majority of the American workforce, which is a real tragedy. So at the end of it all, yeah, this whole thing, DeSantis and Abbott, it was funny for a little while as ha 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 own the own the libs, pwn the Democrats. But Beyond a, a quick laugh, you know, at their expense, it, again, we said this before, no one cares about hypocrisy. No, the Democrats certainly do not care if you call them hypocrites, even if you have right. concrete proof that they are hypocrites, which they are. We all know that it doesn't matter to them and it doesn't ultimately achieve a long term victory. The only I mean, to me, the most long term victory would be if these governors could just send these illegals back over the border where they belong. So at that point, even if they start ping ponging back and forth across the border, at the very least, you're not sending them anywhere else in the United States. I, I don't want these illegals anywhere in the U.S. I don't I don't care if it's a blue state. You know, it's one of these days. This was one of my fears, too. And then we'll move on here real quick, is that, you know, with all this busing around, flying them around, whatever, they get ping pong back and forth from one state to the next. They'll go from Florida to, to New York, blah, 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 blah. At some point, one of those illegals that gets bounced around is going to be an MS-13 type covered in tattoos and whatnot, who's going to chop someone's head off with a machete. And then everyone's going to be pointing fingers like, oh, who's to blame for this illegal? He wouldn't have killed this woman if he wasn't bust here by DeSantis, blah, blah, blah. And again, I don't care if it's some liberal woman in Massachusetts. That's still an American. I don't want to see any Americans killed by illegal aliens. And that that may be a much smaller, like isolated example or a, a less likely threat than the broader devaluing of American labor, but it's a threat nonetheless. We're playing with fire here, and I ultimately don't like the idea, as funny as it was at first. Well, again, it's a good plan because it actually does put the spotlight on immigration. But again, this is something that we need to emphasize that, yes, we care more about liberals, uh, liberal Americans, than we do hardworking, socially conservative immigrants. We don't want the hardworking, socially conservative immigrants coming here. We want to convert the liberal Americans to our side first. Exactly, exactly. And then we won't have to worry about the immigrants because we'll all be on the same page on America first immigration policy. Well, moving on to more immigration related news, 
don't really focus much on international news and foreign policy. This is mostly an America domestic policy focused podcast. But every now and then we like to show what happens in countries that go the wrong way to show to show where America could go if we ended up going down that path. This is from Summit News. This is by Paul Joseph Watson. Paul <laughs> Joseph Watson has done a lot of good breaking news and actually brought a lot of spot, a spotlight uh, to Americans on what's happening in Europe. I think Branch but, off. Uh, this Creating his own brand what? was definitely one of the better things he could have done. Like he broke off and did his own yeah. thing on YouTube right in that golden era of right wing conservative activism in 2015, and 2016 with people like Milo Yiannopoulos, Lauren Southern. He was part of that like original crew of grassroots activists and and pundits and speakers who really, you know, with the wave that ultimately brought Donald Trump into office, they were such a powerhouse movement. And yeah, his, his publication Summit News is is a pretty good publication. But this article is entitled Germany. Greens plan to ban native Germans from a third of jobs to promote diversity. So this is a clearly unconstitutional, but get a load of this. In the name of promoting diversity, ruling Greens in the German city of Hanover plan to ban a third of native citizens from applying to government jobs so they can be given to migrants. Yes, really. This a is green real. mayor makes a difference, wrote Turkish-born Phyllis Polat, managing director of the Greens parliamentary group. This guy, he's the managing director of the Greens, and he's Turkish-born. Polat yeah. was referring to Hanover Mayor Belit One, another foreigner, who came to power in November 2019 and is also of Turkish heritage. Big surprise. Quote, by the end of 2026, a third of all newly advertised positions in the city should be filled by applicants with a migration background, wrote Polat. In an effort to vastly increase the number of foreign origin migrants in positions of local authority, a draft resolution brought by the city's integration committee will ensure that, quote, the target figure for all new hires is 30%. So this means that in the city of Hanover, the government of Hanover wants to make sure that all future government employees, 30% of future government employees are set aside to be filled by migrants. Unbelievable. So if you're a German citizen who is qualified for a job and 70% of the positions have already been filled by native Germans, you are not eligible. They will not interview you. They will not look at your application. It doesn't matter how qualified you are for you are for a particular job. This is just complete insanity. Now, this is of course unconstitutional. This will go before courts. This will be challenged. But th this was part of the established Hanover status as a quote-unquote immigration city, and the campaign was also going to comprise of a quote-unquote day of diversity at local schools to increase anti-racist coaching. But yeah, this, so this is just this is something that I, should be a warning to Americans of what can and actually does happen in America. Uh, it's absolutely true what has been said before, and this actually allows us to perfect excuse to cover briefly. Uh, as we said, we don't talk about foreign issues generally here on The Right Take. We talk about American politics first and foremost, American culture, but it is worth acknowledging, as has been said, as goes Europe, so goes the United States. You could argue Europe is maybe a, a decade or two into the future politically ahead of us. And obviously, there are obvious differences, of course, between their parliamentary systems where they have multiple parties and our two-party system. But you see, you get to see the total opposite ends, both ends of the spectrum here. Of course, recently in Europe, we had massive national populist victories in Sweden. And of course, the one everyone's talking about right now is Italy, where they keep saying the most far-right government since Mussolini himself is about to take over, which, I mean... Given the direction of Europe right now, we could use a far-right government at this point, obviously. And there's, of course, debates whether or not Mussolini was really far-right as whether or not fascism is really a right-wing ideology or not. But the point being, they are scared of these 
kinds of governments taking power and shutting off that valve of immigration. Because you look to Italy, you look to Sweden to see the response from the citizens, from those native populations against stuff like this. And of course, it's happening in Germany. Germany is basically the center of the EU. You know, Angela Merkel, the, that is the basis of most of the EU's policies on green energy, on immigration, et cetera, et cetera. And you got to keep in mind too, again, with Europe having that parliamentary multi-party system, the Greens are a much more viable party in most European countries than they are here in the United States. Here in the United States, you know, Jill Stein, these losers who like to sit in traffic intersections to protest against polar bears or whatever, like they, they're a joke. They're never going to win an election anywhere in the United States. In Germany, they are viable. And this is an indication of how dangerous they can be if given power, even if it's just one city, if it's just the city of Hanover, one city that still says a lot about what they intend to do. Like if they could do this to the whole country, they absolutely would. But of course they know now that if they try to do this, they're going to see an absolute revolt like we just saw in Italy. Again, the third largest economy in Europe, a major player in the European power structure is now about to have a 100% total right-wing, Eurosceptic, anti-immigration government. So this, these are the stakes. This is yeah, the, the, the Greens won 15% of the 2021 federal election in Germany. Mm -hmm. so like here, it's maybe 1%, 1.5%. They won 15%. They own, they have 118 of the 736 seats in the Bundestag. Uh, so, but yeah, it, but just as an example of how much they hate Germany, they wanted to take the word Germany out of their platform. Uh, the, the Germany's new anti-discrimination commissioner uh, recently came under fire because she referred to her fellow Germans as potatoes. <laughs> it's like they, they literally hate their own people. I remember that one video of Angela Merkel at like an EU event or something where uh there were they were waving the EU flags in the audience and someone handed her a little German flag like on a pole and she just like uh -huh. shook yeah, it away. She sh shook her head angrily, like waved it away and grabbed an EU flag, the, the the yellow star circle on the blue background and started waving that like the chancellor of Germany refuses to fly a German flag. Th that tells you, of course, thank God she's not the chancellor anymore over there, but that tells well, you the guy oh, they got now he's even worse of, of course he is and again he's got a nice great big headache now uh, as do most of these uh you know globalists in europe with the election of georgia maloney the, the incoming right-wing government in sweden as well that also cannot be understated okay so this is a publication for our main topic we're going to cover it's discussing how americans can actually take back academia specifically how republicans can influence academia and this was published in the publication Year Zero. It's a publication by Wesley Yang in Substack. And just a little background on Wesley Yang. Wesley Yang came to prominence whenever he, he is a Korean-American, and he came to prominence whenever he wrote about the Korean who did the shooting at Virginia Tech back in 2007. Oh, yeah. And he has since published The Souls of Yellow Folk in 2018. He is uh, currently a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a contributor for Esquire, mm -hmm. and he recently has uh, been pretty prolific in his attacking of woke ideology and basically what, what he des describes as the successor ideology, which of course is uh, in the elevation of groups as opposed to individuals, and he is mainly focused on how that's replacing liberalism. So this is actually not written by him. This is written by a professor who uses the pseudonym Tim Shampling, because, of course, in our free society, if you're a professor at a university, you cannot write anything that's critical of woke ideology and still keep your job. Right. So he writes, universities are some of the most durable social forms ever created, older than the nation state and modern democracy, which is true. 
The entire clerical and professional stratum of the country on which any party depends to govern effectively passes through them and is shaped by prevailing manners and mores imparted within them. Conservatives have allowed these essential institutions to fall into the hands of their adversaries who are busily reshaping them into woke indoctrination factories from which anyone fusing obeisance to noxious new orthodoxies is systematically being purged. And this is something we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, and that is how exactly this happened. Because anyone who's gone to college understands that there is absolutely no serious dissent from the left-wing orthodoxy that has dominated universities for at least the past 40 years. And this isn't something that's recent. The thing that really broke me up back was whenever Milo was screamed down at Berkeley. This mm. happened in early 2017. Well, that didn't... was kind of the thing that really shot across the bow that woke people up to how bad things were. Things were already bad. Because they didn't happen like things. They didn't just shout Milo down. They literally started burning buildings. They, they smashed windows over a hundred thousand dollars in damage. He had to be escorted out by security. That was really and because this is like right after Trump's inauguration as well. So this was, as you said, yeah, there were already protests and people being shouted down on college campuses in fifteen and sixteen. But that was a sign of the real escalation. It would kind of foreshadow, you know, the leftists at uh, Charlottesville who attacked the peaceful protesters there. Like same thing that it would go on to spiral out of control after that. This professor writes, progressive dominance was obtained through a slow incremental process of institutional capture that accelerated to the decades as various inflection points were reached. We are now in the home stretch in which the pace has become a sprint. And, and you think about if you go back 20 years, 30 years, all the professors were liberal. The history professors like 95 percent back then, just as it is today. But you had real debate in the classroom. I remember even whenever I entered college, you had dissent in the classroom. Now, everyone who's kind of accepted that the obviously we agree with all the liberal professors, and liberal historians when it comes to understanding the Civil War, Reconstruction, World War Two. The great society, you know, obviously LBJ was a great president, JFK was a great president, Ronald Reagan was a terrible president. These were just basically that everyone seemed to accept, but they would allow dissenting opinion. Like you wouldn't be crucified for objecting. In fact, I remember this one professor who was just a raging liberal. He was, he was a funny guy, but he was extremely liberal and hated Reagan. One of our students, he came in with a Reagan Bush shirt one, one time during class, and he just belly laughed. Like he thought it was the, this professor thought it was the funniest thing ever. So like this was kind of the the environment. Like professors were liberal, most of the students were liberal, but if there was a conservative who wasn't a jerk, who you know professed his beliefs, he wouldn't be shunned. He wouldn't be treated as pure evil. His classmates would not try to get him fired from his job. They would not try to ruin his career potential. But today, in this day and age, you simply wouldn't wear a Reagan Bush shirt to a history class. No. Not if you wanted any kind of future. Like not if you wanted to get an internship or get a job. And just for for reference, this guy who wore the Reagan Bush shirt, he ended up getting hired by the university on a recommendation of that professor. So it's it was a completely different culture from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Yes, things were liberal and everyone, and this is, I think, why conservatives became so complacent. They understood that, yes, universities are liberal, history departments are liberal, but it's just all fun and games. It's all good humor. We're all Americans. At the end of the day, we all just want to go home and make money, go home to our families. And that was true to an extent, but it's not true whenever you introduce anti-colonialism. Because when you introduce anti-colonialism and that becomes the main dogma of universities, it, it, it's a completely – it's not you're not, dealing with, you're not dealing with liberals. And I remember a difference in this was I got a public history professor at one point. Now, public history is basically a made-up field uh, by a bunch of Marxists in the 70s 
who didn't want, who didn't believe in capitalism, didn't want to contribute to capitalism. So they were trying to come up with some way where they could have a middle class lifestyle and not contribute to capitalism. So they created this thing called public history. What it is is basically the study of museums, and they're trying to train people to go to work for the Smithsonian. It's basically an entire field just to train people to go work for the Smithsonian. But this this lady who was a public history professor, I, I could tell she was so liberal that I didn't dare object to anything she said. She was the only professor I ever had where I felt that I did not have the freedom to express my opinion. I simply had to keep my mouth shut, pass the test. And of course, I got an A in the class because I pretended I, I, like I agreed with everything she said. But unfortunately, this is the norm at just about every university in this day and age. So what this professor is doing is he's offering a roadmap to fix this problem. Because obviously, you've got a country where 60% of the country doesn't agree with this kind of indoctrination. They're not Maoists. They don't agree with the kind of stifling of free speech. The question becomes, how is it that they allow this to happen? Why is it that in the state of Ohio, you have over 30 people at Ohio State University who make over $100,000 a year? Those 30 people do nothing but enforce DEI. That's 30 people who make over $100,000. They're all paid by the taxpayer. How is it in Red Ohio that that happens? And that's one thing that this professor brings up, and he brings up this in many other examples of red states, where you have in some of the red states you have the most dogmatic leftist teachings in university. In 2016, the Tennessee legislature voted to eliminate the budget for a diversity office at the University of Tennessee, but then reinstated it after proving unable to withstand pushback and accusations of racism. So universities actively discriminate against white people. Yes. They discriminate against people, white people who are trying to get jobs in higher education. They discriminate against white students. The white majority Republican legislature steps in and tries to put a stop to it. They get accused of racism and they cower in fear and they reinstate it and they give the University of Tennessee their tax dollars back so they can continue to discriminate against white people. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Okay, so let's let's think of a couple of reasons why this happens. Number one, who is the base of the Republican Party? They're primarily small business owners, didn't go to college. They're primarily collar workers, didn't go to college. The people who were well paid in their careers and are now retired, if they were millennials, they would have had to go to college to achieve those careers. They didn't have to go to college back in their day and age. So they didn't ever set foot on the college campus. So I would venture to say that about 80% of the Republican base, 75-80%, have never set foot on a college campus in their life. Many of them grew up in an era in which less than 20% of people they knew ever went to college and less than 15% graduated. You didn't have to have a college degree to have a good middle-class life. So you're dealing with a base that doesn't understand any of this stuff. So if you're going to turn, let's say as a legislature, you're going to eliminate a diversity officer. The people who are going to scream in your face are going to be the people who are desperate to keep that diversity officer hired. Your base doesn't care. Nobody's going to show up to counter picket. Nobody's going to write letters and demand that that officer stay fired or that you retrieve those funds from that university that's misusing them. They don't know where their money is being spent in universities. They don't care. They don't know what universities do. And this is a problem when it comes to passing legislation to try to curb the influence of universities. This professor offers some constructive criticism of DeSantis. DeSantis recently, more than any other governor, has been cracking down on yes. wokeism, and he actually commends DeSantis for doing that. 
And with the help the problem, of a, though, a heavily Republican legislature at his side, overwhelming majorities that will give him pretty much anything he wants. That's true, but you have plenty of states who have overwhelming Republican majorities who will give their Republican governors anything they want, but you don't see that kind of legislation from those states. Right. And the only reason why you see some of that legislation from those states now is because DeSantis took the lead. Mm-hmm. So you've had Republican states for 20, 30 years when all this DEI crap has been going on. But this uh, professor points out, he says, in Governor Ron DeSantis, we see the emergence of a figure who both recognizes the importance of resisting the woke revolution, but there is reason to fear that one of his first legislative forays in this direction will strengthen the very forces he is attempting to oppose, as well as inflict a range of other harms. Those who share his in his goals must think hard about the consequences of their actions and about which measures will be effective. The centerpiece of the Post-Secondary Education Act, which DeSantis recently signed into law, authorized the Board of Governors overseeing Florida's public university system to subject all tenured professors at state universities to a performance review every five years. Poor performers, defined by criteria yet to be elaborated, would be fired. DeSantis called this law the most significant tenure reform in the country and boasts that tenure will now no longer be used to shield unproductive faculty from accountability. And this professor rightly points out that this law is extremely misguided. First of all, let's think about productivity. A professor is not productive in the same way that a line worker is productive at a factory. A professor doesn't produce in the same way that a business owner produces or a, I don't know, like a cook produces. They don't produce goods, basically. They don't produce tangible goods. Exactly, yes. So the only way you could productivity in a professor is through publishing. You know, professors publish in academic journals that are read by five other people. <laughs> they have most universities do have a requirement that as a professor you have to publish at least one article per year. Most professors will publish two or three a year. But nobody reads these articles except for students. If a student is having to write a paper, then they'll pull up JSTOR and then they'll research these articles that have been written by professors and they read them and they write their report. These reports get an A and they're thrown in the trash. No one reads them, no one publishes them, and no one ever reads this professor's work. So the problem with this is it's going to end up causing professors to say, okay, you want production? I'll produce production. I'll just write article after article, useless article in these useless journals. All of these journals are woke. All these journals are far left. And all these articles are going to be far left. So the production goal doesn't really mean much. Now, to a blue-collar worker, when they hear that, they, they don't know what a professor does. In their mind, a professor is a snobby elitist. And they think, oh, our governor is making them work for a living. That's good. I have to work for a living. They should have to work for a living. They shouldn't make $80,000 and not have to work. I only make $40,000, and I bust my butt every day. So this is the, this is the typical blue-collar mentality. I'm not knocking blue-collar workers. This is just like, this is the way people think never went to college. So it plays to the base, that non-college-educated base that doesn't understand what happens on university campuses and will support Ron DeSantis because he's cracking down on these hoity-toity elite. Another issue that this professor takes with the Post-Secondary Education Act is it attacks tenure. Who is protected by tenure? Primarily, it's conservatives. If you're going to give a university or a board, a university or some type of oversight board, the ability to revoke tenure, the first people that they're going to revoke tenure from is going to be conservative professors, the few who are left. Tenure, in many cases, is the only thing that's keeping conservatives hired at these universities because they gained tenure 20 years ago, back back before the revolution. Now that the revolution has happened, tenure is the only thing that's keeping them in their job. So this could indirectly hurt conservative professors by allowing conservatives to get to lose tenure and get fired. 
So the question then remains, what should Republican state houses do? And this is what this professor asked. So we've, we've presented the problem. Academia is now filtering corporate America. So it's not, it's not like the 80s where you could say, yeah, this is isolated to maybe school teachers are liberal. Who cares? They're making 35000 a year. But the corporate world is conservative because they're business-minded. The left, primarily driven by the tech elite, is fiscally conservative because they care about increasing their profit margins. So you can't simply take refuge in the business world. Because these raging lunatics on college campus back in 2015, 2016, they're 25, 27, 28, 30 now, and they are moving their way up in the corporate world. And I remember for years, conservatives thought, oh, well, good luck getting a job. You know, all right, young lady, well, you're not going to get anyone to hire you. Well, you know where these people are getting hired? They're getting hired at the universities that they came out of. And these Mm -hmm. universities are creating six-figure salary jobs these gender studies students or these special separate disciplines that were created within the past decade the only, to make really good money, yeah, basically the, enforcing their doctrine, enforcing the, 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 the regime's doctrine. So this professor asked, what then should Republican state houses do? Because Republicans can win elections. That's not something that's – Republicans can still vote even if they can't make as much money because they're barred from certain professions. He writes, I am neither a lawyer nor a politico, so I can only gesture at broad lines of reform rather than make strong promises about specific mechanisms of implementation. But I believe some assortment of the following tailored appropriately to the specific context could be salutary. The point being, yeah, when people say like, oh, you're never going to get a job with that gender studies, lesbian, dance theory, basket weaving degree. That's mostly true, except there is the, those are the degrees I like to call to. I like to refer to them as professor only majors or POMs, where basically the only realistic job you can have with that kind of major or that degree is being a professor in that subject. And a lot of them do go into that. And it creates this, this self-fulfilling cycle where, yeah, they could not get a job otherwise with that degree other than continuing to teach those ideas to future students and to keep it going through generations. So it absolutely is still a very dangerous thing for them to have that degree, even if they know they're not going to get to use it if they go flip burgers or something. But that's not the point. That's not why they go for those degrees. But beyond that, a lot of them aren't even teaching it. What's happening is the universities are creating an administrative job. So as I mentioned, Ohio State University has over 30 people who work specifically in DEI. They work specifically in enforcing diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion on campus. They don't teach classes. They basically just oversee student groups. They enforce the dogma. So now there are a lot more paths available for these people other than just teaching. So the some of the solutions this professor offers is, number one, dismantling licensing and degree requirements. This is something that Republicans have given lip service to for years. Let's say, for instance, like uh, you shouldn't be licensed to be a barber. You shouldn't have to get a license to be a barber. If people in your community respect you enough to give you their money to cut their hair, you ought to be allowed to cut their hair. You shouldn't have to get a license for it. And there's a whole slew of other professions that you have to be licensed in. A lot of these professions, you can get a license by not going to college. A lot of them, though, you do have to go get a four-year degree. A good example is uh, a Head Start teacher. We're talking three and four-year-olds. My mom wanted to be a Head Start teacher. But in order to be a Head Start teacher, to teach three and four-year-olds, she had to go get herself a four-year degree. So she would have to go into debt, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to get a four-year degree so she could be a Head Start teacher and make 35000 a year. Just completely ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. So this is the number one issue that Republicans need to focus on. If you want to empower young Republican adults who will then eventually take over the country and eventually be able to lead the country, you have to allow them to make a living. 
And one way to do that is to allow them to make a living without going into debt, without getting a college degree. As late as 1960, only 8% of the country went to college, 8%. And we were not a notably less competent or competitive nation then. You could argue we were actually a much stronger nation in 1960. We certainly had a much broader middle class when 92% of the country did not go to college. Ideally, any job in 1985 that didn't require a college degree should not require a degree today. And you, people will argue, well, what about the tech sector? Like those tech jobs didn't exist. There's a lot of stuff online that didn't exist then. Listen, there's lots of programs out there where people can be educated online. You can take classes and employers can educate you in two, three months and get you called up to be able to do a job competently. Whereas a lot of people go and they get a four-year degree and they waste time taking English classes and history classes and science classes they're never going to use. It's basically a repeat of high school and they become indoctrinated. They get out and they're unhirable because they didn't learn. So that's the first thing that Republicans need to do. They need to eliminate licensing and degree requirements that are unnecessary. Secondly, additional academic freedom and free speech protections need to be given real teeth. We hear Republicans campaign on this all the time. They're going to get rid of, of the woke ideology of the institutions, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. They don't even know what woke means, but they'll, they'll campaign on free speech, but they'll pass laws that don't have actual teeth. And this is part of the conservative ideology where they just don't believe in government. They, they want to return to a minimalist government in a country that has been dominated by non-governmental entities and non-governmental institutions. A first step would be to dispel some of the libertarian fantasies that have set government and liberty in a zero-sum relationship. So, for instance, an ideal of free speech requires the state to use its power to restrain corporations, mobs, once neighbors, etc., from harming individuals for what they say. So the libertarian says, well, as long as we eliminate government, then free speech will reign. Everyone will have free speech because the government won't be around to impede people's speech. Okay, so what if all your neighbors decide to get outside in your front yard and they threaten to burn your house down because of something you said? There's no government. So who do you turn to for defense? That's That, that reminds me of something that... that uh... Oh, Way back in the day, Sargon of Akkad, uh, real name Carl Benjamin, the famous uh, British YouTuber and podcaster who later ran for the European Parliament. Absolute mad lad. I loved his work. He was one of the earlier voices I listened to like when I was really coming into my political transition in, in, uh, in college. He did a whole video once analyzing all of the major black bloc ideologies, you know, anarcho anything. And mm -hmm. he talked about anarcho-communism and anarcho-capitalism, which realistically is the end goal of most libertarian ideology. And he said famously, and I think very accurately, he said, anarcho-capitalism is the absolute most delusional ideology of them all, even more so than anarcho-communism, because at least anarcho-communists acknowledge you will not have private property rights. No one has private property rights in communism, especially in anarcho-communism. They think we'll all have our unregulated weed farms and 12-year-old child brides that we can defend with rocket launchers and our own private tanks. But the problem is, if there's no government, hence the anarcho, who protects your rights if your neighbors decide to come kill you? No uh -huh. one. No one's going to enforce your property rights in an anarcho society, plain and simple. Yeah, that's the thing. Government is simply a stakeholder in society. Government is not the end-all, be-all. And I understand what people who grew up in the mid-20th century would think like this because the most egregious violators of human freedom were governments. You had the Soviet Union, you had Nazi Germany, you had all these you – know, you know, dictatorships like Franco Spain. Yes, the government was an all power into a powerful entity before the age of the internet. But in this day and age, the government's simply a stakeholder and it needs to be 
put in its proper place, which means it needs to be empowered. And he writes, to begin, states should pass legislation that mandates a zero-tolerance policy for campus disruption and heckler's veto activity in all educational and deliberative contexts. And this is all these mobs that you see, all these riots that take place on college campuses. That's the heckler's veto. A conservative student group invites a conservative speaker. A conservative speaker shows up. A hundred students show up and scream and yell, and the conservative speaker cannot get a word in edgewise. No one can hear him because they yell over him, and that's the heckler's veto. That's the more mild cases. Some of the more egregious cases are they rush the stage, they start fires, they bust out windows, they riot. So this is one of the things that you've got to do. And this is the thing that a lot of states had to do back in the early 20th century when lynching was still an issue. Who was going to protect innocent victims from being lynched? Obviously, the government was the only entity that could protect innocent victims from being lynched. The local sheriff's office didn't have enough men to protect them. The police department didn't have enough men to protect them. So in order to stop the heckler's veto, you have to have a zero-tolerance policy. That means instant expulsion. If you riot or if you veto through heckling a speaker who has been invited to the university to speak, you are instantly expelled. End of story. If you're a professor and you engage in the same activity or you encourage that kind of activity, if you don't have tenure, you're fired. You're, a st- you're an employee, fired instantly. And the way that you would enforce this is you simply cut funding to universities who refuse to comply. Because currently, universities never a Republican legislature takes over and they try to pass laws that limit universities' freedom. Universities, they rally together and they go straight back into 1960s mode. They revert back to their hippie days. The best case is Florida Stop Woke Act. There were civil remedies included in that bill. And so, for instance, if you're a teacher and you're forced to go through DEI training, you can sue the school. And the same can be held with, uh, with a speaker. So let's say, for instance, uh, National Right to Life for the Students for Life or whatever. They invite a pro-life speaker. And the university stonewalls them by demanding $500,000 for protection. Because this is what a lot of universities are doing. They can't outright ban people from coming and speaking because of the First Amendment. So what they'll do is they'll say, well, because this is a controversial speaker. And so, and then of course, behind the scenes, the professors are actually working with Antifa and students who want to develop mobs to come and practice the heckler's veto. And they're working hand in glove with the administration that is then requiring these speakers to cough up $100,000 up front. And of course, the student groups, they don't have that kind of money, so they can't afford to bring in conservative speakers. So if something like that were to happen, then the student group could then sue the university. Okay, thirdly, the Chatham House Rule. The Chatham House Rule states that in the context of a classroom, students and professors can discuss anything, allows for open debate, but you are not allowed to reveal the identity of speakers outside of class. So it prevents people from then spreading on social media what a particular student's opinion was on a particular issue. Because if the student does that and it's found out that they did that, they get expelled. Because what's happening a lot right now is conservative students can't speak up in class. They can't say a word because they know that liberal students in that class, they will find out where they're interning and they will get them fired. And so the Chatham House rule would make it against school policy for anyone to reveal the identity of anyone's opinion outside of class. So if the professor expresses opinion on abortion or any issue, the students are not allowed to reveal that that professor said that in class. Fourthly, the Calvin Committee rule. 
The Calvin Report was a product of a 1967 faculty committee formed at the University of Chicago. The committee's purpose was to create a report regarding the school's role in political and social action. And keep in mind, this is the 60s, so it's right through, the, right in the middle of the hippie rebellion. The report focused on the importance of institutional neutrality and preserving academic freedom for both the faculty and students. It wrote, quote, the university is a community, but only for the limited, albeit great purpose of teaching and research. It is not a club. It is not a trade association. It is not a lobby. There is no mechanism by which it can reach a collective position without inhibiting that full freedom of consent on which it thrives. It cannot insist that all of its members favor a given view of social policy. If it takes collective action, therefore, it does so at the price of censoring a minority who do not agree with the view adopted. In brief, it is a community which cannot resort to a majority vote to reach positions on public issues. Now, what's happening a lot with universities is they'll issue a statement on a social issue like Black Lives Matter. It's like when when George Floyd was killed, all of these universities, every public university issued a statement saying that they stand in solidarity with black lives. They issued a support, some type of support, usually written by some type of DEI person. The Calvin Committee rule is another way in which that conservative legislatures can force universities to remain neutral. Now, that doesn't mean that whenever I first read this, I thought, okay, well, does that mean that a professor can't give his opinion on social media? He can't put on Facebook that he supports a politician? No, no, that's not what this means at all. This just means that the administrators, the university itself, the, on the university's official Twitter account, they cannot endorse a specific viewpoint. They have to remain neutral so that their professors and their students can then be themselves and express themselves freely. Because if you think about it, if you're a professor and you don't have tenure at a university and your university comes out in favor of Black Lives Matter, you think your job is secure if you're a conservative? No. At that point, if you want to keep that job, you just have to shut up, keep your head down, either pretend to be a liberal or try to avoid politics altogether. All right, fifth, DEI. We've talked about DEI a lot. We've devoted two whole episodes to DEI. That's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ideally, Republican politicians would simply clean out the DEI bureaucracy altogether at public universities. And the fact that they haven't, there are red states. In fact, there's not a single red state in America, anywhere in America where this has happened. The fact that they haven't done this shows how far out of touch they are with academia. This professor wrote that an online locator of his said, quote, the campaign ads write themselves. We fired X, quote, commissars saved Y dollars, reduced tuition by Z as a direct consequence. And it's true. Republican politicians could run on completely cleaning out the DEI bureaucracy. Then they run ads saying, we fired this professor for being woke. We fired this administrator for being anti-white. We fired this particular university administrative staff member for being pro-LGBTQIA. And it's campaign ads that people would respond to. I mean, you think about, you know that CNN would have a cow over it. The Republican voters would show out in droves to vote for any politician that ran on that particular platform. Despite popular criticism of do-nothing Republicans, this hasn't happened for lack of will. And this is what a lot of people will claim that, well, they're just a bunch of rhinos. You elect Republicans, nothing happens. The universities stay leftist. All the institutions stay leftist. It's because most people haven't read what this professor is writing. This is an actual professor who works at a university, so he knows what he's talking about. The average Republican politician went to school back in the 80s when DEI didn't exist. 
So they don't know to do any of this stuff. Now, really, the word woke is the only introduction that any Republican voter has to any any of this, has to DEI or any of this. Right. And we've talked about this before on the podcast that long story short, woke has basically what it originally was is it was used by black voters. You know, the BLM, the highly politicized woke in its origins was used by highly political far left black voters, you know, the BLM movement to talk about the fact that they were woke to racial injustices, systemic racism, et cetera, et cetera, deliberately using bad grammar, of course, because the term is awoken or awake rather than woke. But they used it unironically in, I think, maybe about 2014 or so, give or take, 2015. And in the last few years, the right has now co-opted it to become uh, derogatory, to like say, oh, you're woke, you're a woke idiot. You know, like President Trump famously said in one of his rallies, he said, (laughs) it was great. He said, everything woke turns to shit. And it was great. It was funny, (laughs) but it's true. But the problem is, it has now become a broad umbrella term by most people on the right to mean anything left wing. So now COVID mandates are woke, transgenderism is woke, and that's not correct. Woke at its at its origin, its original purpose was to refer specifically to race relations, to the Black Lives Matter movement. So if you say DEI, you know, diversity, equity, affirmative action, yes, that is woke by definition. But unfortunately, this has been kind of lost in translation for most on the right. Now, why has it been lost in translation? It was specifically lost in translation on purpose by GOP funders and the GOP establishment because it accomplishes two objectives. Number one, it avoids all discussion of race. The Republican Party doesn't want to talk about race. never want to talk about race. And secondly, it's able to divert the justified white rage that the Biden administration has talked about so much into banal party politics. Now it's not the woke blacks. It's the woke left. And it just it muddies everything. And so what it does is it causes angry working class white people who know they're being discriminated against to channel their anger into giving their hard-earned money that they don't have much of to the Republican Party. Sixthly, curriculum. Ideally, Republican politicians would also clean out the curriculum altogether at public universities. There should be no studies department. And if there are studies departments, like if you want to have a study, let's say this is the Department of the Study of African-American Literature or um, African-American Struggle Against Oppression. Okay, if you want to have that kind of department, then it's got to go through a bureaucracy. It's got to go through scrutiny. You've got to make sure that that department is fair in its hiring practices. As long as we're going to have civil rights act laws on the books, then you've got to apply them fairly. Even traditional prerequisites, this is something that this professor recommends that I definitely agree with. Even traditional prerequisites like history, English, sciences, et cetera, you know, all those classes you take as a freshman and sophomore that you took as an 11th and 12th grade that you don't need because it doesn't have anything to do with your major, he thinks that we should reevaluate all that. And I completely agree. You could actually crush a bachelor's degree down to two or three years if you got rid of all the all the fluff, all that other nonsense that you don't need. But now what a lot of universities are doing is they're forcing people to take gender studies. They're forcing people to take race studies, just like they force them to take math. and They're forcing them to take English 101 and science and all that other stuff. So yeah, all that stuff needs to be reevaluated. All the studies departments need to be preferably eliminated or placed under scrutiny. And then thirdly, by policing content, Republicans would drive down these courses' values. So if you want to eliminate these courses, just place them under bureaucratic scrutiny. And seventhly, this professor recommends completely root out affirmative action. And you may say, well, yeah, duh, Republicans have always opposed affirmative action. In fact, the Supreme Court is most likely going to rule affirmative action illegal this year or next year. But the thing is, it's irrelevant what the Supreme Court rules because the universities are completely controlled by leftists. So the Supreme Court can rule whatever they want. 
if a law isn't passed by the state legislatures or the Congress and signed by the president with teeth that forces universities to comply with rooting out affirmative action, they're just going to completely ignore the Supreme Court's ruling. And this is the thing. This is a war. It's not a battle. If you want to root out affirmative action, a Supreme Court ruling isn't going to do it. One law isn't going to do it. You know what? You know how you're going to do it? How are you going to do it, Eric? How do you think you're going to root out affirmative action long term? What's the only way? You've got to make it illegal. Well, you can make it illegal, but who's going to enforce it? Bureaucrats. You have to hire a bureaucracy. You need to create a separate department in every single state. Every state legislator needs to create a separate bureaucracy with the full-time task of reviewing college curriculum and the hiring practices of universities if you want to actually want to work this out. You have to wage a complete bureaucratic war against these universities to force them to reform. You can't simply pass a law because they'll ignore the law. You can't require, you can't rely on students and faculty to bring lawsuits. You need a bureaucracy that's going to pour over every single thing that these universities do. And it's going to require full-time taxpayer-paid bureaucrats. And, and why not? The universities are paid by tax dollars. Our tax dollars are already paying for the universities, so why shouldn't we pay for a bureaucracy to oversee what our tax dollars are paying for? And this, this professor recommends it, the Office of University Oversight, the UOO. I completely concur. And so what would this university bureaucracy look at? It would look at disparate impact laws. Disparate impact laws are laws that are very vaguely defined. When you see a job, it's, let's say, in a particular area where a minority makes up 20% of the population, but they're only 5% of the hires, the disparate impact laws step in and they bring lawsuits against employers because they're obviously discriminating. Because if a minority that makes it 20% is only 5% of the jobs, hey, conservative professors make up like 10% of the jobs. There's obvious viewpoint discrimination. You can't tell me that conservatives are so stupid and so uneducated and so dumb that they can only make it into 10% of faculty positions. I don't believe it. So obviously, that's where disparate impact laws come in. And in order to enforce that, you need a bureaucracy. Another thing is scouring job boards. This, these bureaucrats would scour university job boards, and they would look at the wording in employment opportunities. And if it's very obvious that that particular job would not be available to a conservative or to anyone, to everyone who is qualified, then a lawsuit needs to be brought against that university or whoever created the job needs to be fired. Another example is they could shutter some departments from the state capitol. In other words, from their bureaucracy in the state capitol, if a, a particular department is discriminatory, like say, for instance, the Department of the Study of White Supremacy, that's obviously discriminatory. The bureaucrats ought to have the power to shut that department down. Yes, that's called bureaucratic dictatorship. That's called authoritarianism. That's called totalitarianism, and we need more of it, especially whenever we're in power. This is the only way you're going to take back power. This is the only way you're going to reform the universities. You have to use authoritarianism. You have to crack down and shut down departments, fire professors, expel students. Another thing, lastly, is target of opportunity hiring. Tar target of opportunity hiring is when the administration wants to boost their minority hires. So they will tell a particular department, let's say history department, that we need you to bring us a candidate who fits this particular demographic. We don't care if you have a job opening. We need you to boost your minority hire. So we want you to find a candidate, any candidate that you would like to hire. And in order to help you, we will actually cover part of the cost of his salary. Whereas traditionally, if you had an opening in, say, uh, Chaucer or, say, medieval English history, 
then the department would create a job opening and anyone could apply. But instead, the, the administration is saying, we want you to hire a minority, so you just create a job for them and we'll cover part of their salary. That's another thing that bureaucracy will look into. So in conclusion, this professor writes, populist appeals are all well and good and have their place, but we live in a society in which the exercise of power is unavoidably administrative. Libertarian fantasies aside, a modern society cannot do without well-endowed sites of resource-intensive research, disinterested scholarship, and competent pedagogy. Thus, it is an act of patriotism to restore them from the cultural extremism and degradation of standards that has made them anathema to a broad swath of the public on whose continuing goodwill their flourishing depends. So two concluding points he makes, just to summarize. It's all good to have a Trumpian populist politician who can win working class votes. That doesn't do anything to reform universities. The universities are going to continue chugging along and churning out leftist corporate leaders who are going to rule over those blue-collar voters. You actually have to create an administrative state that is going to act like a bureaucratic dictatorship in order to reform these universities back into the classical liberal institutions they were created to be. And secondly, libertarians live in a fantasy world. If you want to have progress, if you want to have a well-functioning society, you have to have a government and you have to have taxpayer-funded universities. And in order for that to work, you have to have oversight. So we need to just embrace the fact that we have a government and we need to use it. That's the only way, honestly. The, the left has, in a way, they have shown us the blueprint for what works, using the government mm -hmm. to enforce your ideology and to crack down on your opponents. I, I get tired at this point of hearing like, oh, we can't use the government. We can't strengthen the government because that sets a bad precedent. The left will start doing it to us. Uh, <laughs> last I checked, the FBI just raided a Catholic pro-life yes. author and activist. A nobody, by the way. This wasn't even, In front you know, of his crying children. Seven screaming, crying children. This wasn't, you know, Peter Navarro or Steve Bannon or President Trump in Mar-a-Lago. This was a nobody that no one had heard of before. The FBI sent 30 armed agents to kick down his door and arrest him in front of his children. Why? Because he's an enemy of the state. Clearly, like Biden said in his big speech about how every Trump supporter is a neo-Nazi, basically. It's time to stop kidding ourselves and start using the weapons they have used very effectively against us, against them. That is the only hope we are going to have of fighting back, even beginning to fight, about, to fight back, let alone turn the tides and ultimately win the culture war. What's the point of voting if you don't want the people you vote for to wield power? Voting in a majority that will then implement these policies is the way forward. And that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content and more at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting what we do here on the show as we march on to our 100th episode 20 weeks from now, you can go to righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.